Well, thank you all for being here today. It's just such a pleasure to be able to speak uh, in front of you all. Uh, and we're going to be talking today about how we know God is real. And I just want to say, I never get nervous when I'm up here because I know I'm with family. I know I'm loved. So if I make a mistake and I fall flat in my face, I know you guys will just clap and say, hey, get back up again, and it'll all be fine. Well, you know, uh, I went to a worship night last night with uh, Phil Wickham, right? And after about the second song, he kind of stops and he says, you know, God's really been speaking to me lately. And he said, you know, I know it's like a Sunday school uh, thought or idea, but he said, you know, God's been telling me that, you know, the God, the maker of the heavens and the earth is real. He said that last night. And my first thought was, dude stole my title. I mean, come on, he stole it from me right underneath my nose. Um, but then as I was thinking about it a little bit more, I was thinking, you know, how powerful is that? You know, to me, it was just confirmation that what we're learning about today is something that God, you know, is really speaking uh, to not just, you know, our church, but, you know, millions of other people um, through uh, Phil Wickham and that it's just a confirmation that this is what I feel like God really wants us to hear this morning. Um, so anyway, I, I will say today that it's not possible to convince someone that God is real if they don't want to believe. Uh, but there is a mountain of evidence that points to the existence of a very real and all-powerful God. Now, before I get started, I want to let you know there are copies of my notes on the back table if you would like them. I just don't want people having to write everything out. So everything is back there if you want to pick it up after service. If you want me to email it to you, I can email it to you. There's no problem. I just don't want people, like, writing furiously. I want you just to relax, just pay attention, and just, just kind of enjoy uh, the information that we're going to learn today. And so my message today really began uh, over two years ago. I went to a two-day conference that was designed to uh, help people teach youth how to defend their faith. Uh, and so I started teaching the youth in, in, up, up in youth group on Sunday mornings, and, and, you know, they were really learning, and I could really see the impact that it was having on them. But I was telling my dad, I was like, you know what, this information, it's not just for the youth, it's for everybody. Like, we need everybody in our church community to be learning this, and that's because we really want you to be completely assured in your faith. Um, that's number one. We want you to be completely assured in your faith. And then also, we want you to have the tools to witness to others around you. And then third, we want to systematically teach the next generation the foundational arguments in defense of Christianity. And then fourth, we want you to know that you can call upon the name of the Lord and he will answer you. If you don't know that God is real, how are you going to call on him? How are you going to know that he's going to answer you? So anyway, if we're all in agreement and we're talking about these issues and we understand them and we're talking to our kids and our youth, it's going to have an exponentially greater impact on them than if I'm just talking about them by myself on Sunday morning up in youth group. So anyway, uh, I also want to kind of give you, because there's been big gaps between my uh, different sermons, I want to give you kind of a background and fit this into the larger picture of what we've talked about previously. So if you remember, our church tackled the topic of how we know Jesus really lived, died, and rose again in our Easter play last year. It was called Evidence, a live produ production confirming Jesus' resurrection. Well, that's kind of a mouthful 
That's a big mouthful. I was thinking last night and this morning, I was like, well, how can I say that differently? It's how we know Jesus is alive, okay? That's what the play was all about, how we know Jesus is alive. And we had a courtroom scene, and our beloved Joe Machado played the atheist attorney. So, Joe, why, why don't you come up here and remind us about what we learn in that play? Let's give Joe a round of applause. Yes. You got it. Okay. So, Joe, you were the atheist prosecutor in our trial last year. Can you tell us what happened in the trial? Well, I really just didn't believe that Jesus had rose from the dead. Um, I was prepared. I did my research. And I'll tell you, the arguments from the defense attorney, uh, I, they were so strong. There was nothing that I could do to uh, shoot down those so, uh, Joe, what was the jury's verdict? The verdict was, well, it was very overwhelming, the evidence. They, it was decided upon that uh, Jesus is alive. He died. He rises again. The Bible says about Jesus is really true. Right. So how did you respond when you lost the case? Uh, well, as you know, I never... Uh, lost a case before this trial, okay? Mm -hmm. And that was very upsetting. And I, I got so angry, and I couldn't control myself. Okay, Joe, 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 you can calm down now, all right? That was a long time ago. Well, the, the question is, have you changed your mind yet? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. I used to be very lonely, uh, depressed, and uh, my l I had a lonely life until I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And then what happened? Oh, there was a miraculous change in my life. Now I have this unexplainable joy, and I feel so much better about myself and my life. Well, that is so good, Joe. We are so happy that you became a Christian and that you joined our congregation. So thank you so much for being here today. Right. You may now be seated in the presence of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Thank you, Joe. I, you know, I just had, you know, I just had to do a skit, all right? I had to follow in my father's footsteps. I just had to do a skit. So anyway, um, we had the play that tackled the subject of how we know the Bible. Uh, we, we also had, the, okay, so we had the play, like we said. Then I also tackled the subject of how we know the Bible is true six months ago in March of this year. You can go back and look at the play on YouTube. You can look at my sermon on YouTube, and you can uh, remind yourself of all those arguments. So just as a summary, we've got how we know Jesus is alive, how we know the Bible is true, how we know God is real, and I'm working on how we know truth is absolute. So these are the fundamentals of a biblical worldview. So that's what we're trying to impart to you so that you can share those views with others. And um, it, this message really was born out of uh, a lesson in Vacation Bible School. On the last day of Vacation Bible School, I actually showed that video and kind of taught the kids about how when we look at uh, the design, and we look at beauty, 
uh, we can see that God is real, or he, that he exists. Um, and the thing is, if we're going to go and witness to people uh, and challenge some of the ideas that they hold uh, you know, very dearly, we better know what we're talking about, right? We better have some evidence to show that there's intelligent design or that we know God is real. And what happens with young people is they're told what to believe and they're not told why. They're not told why it's true. And so when they're challenged with other worldviews in college or with their friends or at school or at work, it just rocks them, you know? And so what we want to be able to do and what we want our kids doing is like what's been happening to me at work recently. Okay, so I have this agnostic friend at work, and I actually talked to her, and I said, you know, is it okay if I tell this story? And she said, yeah, fine, that's totally fine. So I have this agnostic friend at work, and one day she came to me and she said, I need your help. I'm like, okay, what, what do you need? You know, what, what can I help you with? And she's like, well, I have this other lady, uh, and, you know, my friend and I were working on this project at work, and this other lady went to her and said, hey, um, uh, how can I be praying for you with this project? And my friend was like, I don't know how to answer her. <laughs> I don't know what to say. She had no idea of how to respond um, to the simple question of how, I, how can I be praying for you? So, you know, I talked to her. I suggested, oh, well, you can respond this way or you can respond that way. And she thanked me, and I was like, I didn't think much of it. I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. That was nice. You know, she was just trying to be polite to that other person. But then she kept coming back to me with more and more questions, you know, deeper, like, what's Christianity all about? What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And I'm like, this is kind of strange, right? Like, is this woman trying to set me up or something? Like, what's going on here? Um, so I was like, you know, okay, um, you know, it seems like you're really interested in this topic. So I gave her a bunch of resources, a couple of books to read, right? So like a couple of days later, she screenshots a picture of the book that I recommended to her, and there was all these citations to the New Testament, and she's like, what are you doing to me? Now i got to read the whole New Testament in order to understand what's being said in this book. And I was like, okay, well, that's good. Um, and so now she is, uh, you know, she's like attributing things that are going well on this project to my prayers and like asking me to pray for other people around her who are having trouble. And I'm just like, praise God, this is amazing. And, and that's, yeah, let's give that a round of applause. And so the point is, we don't need to convince people on the spot. When others see the confidence we have, the love we have for others, uh, and that we are able to give a reason for what we believe, they will just kind of gradually get drawn to it, right? And that's what we want to be talking about today. So we have to have the knowledge to be able to direct people to the right place and be able to intelligently answer their questions. What we see in society today is that evolution has really taken on this ideology that competes with Christianity in a way that no other scientific topics have. Uh, people really are making evolution greater than God, and um, we don't see that in the same way as discoveries from people like Albert Einstein or Sir Isaac Newton, you know, because the principles of Einstein and Newton can be proven. You know, we know that E equals MC squared, or we know that gravity exists in the world ar around us. But, you know, we can't really prove evolution, you know, it it's not really a provable theory. Um, you know, we can't, like, make, do an experiment and show how, like, an ape turned into a human, 
Um, and so evolution is not like gravity or plate tectonics, which are purely scientific in nature. Evolution is now tied to all these other questions, these bigger, larger questions in life, where, like, where did we come from? Who are we? And what is our purpose in life? It has become the basis of an entire way of seeing the world that conflicts with Christianity. Everything in our culture is trying to teach us from a perspective that says everything came about from a blind and purposeless process. If evolution is true, everything must be understood from that perspective. And if we all evolve from a blind and purposeless process, all we do, everything we believe, all our behavior um, can be explained or have an evolutionary explanation. This is why we see evolution influencing not just science, but medicine, economics, law, even religion. Even how some people talk about religion is affected by evolution. For example, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm an attorney by nature. That is my profession. You know, I see evolution influencing the legal profession. I don't know if you know this, but there's this tool of constitutional interpretation called living constitutionalism. This is where judges decide that they can make new rights and new law um, instead of applying the law as written. And really, that is an outgrowth or that is a product of people's views on evolution because the point is that the Constitution needs to evolve to meet the growing needs of society. You know, our society is always growing, we're evolving, so the Constitution has to do the same. And, you know, people have also used evolution to explain why some people need religion. According to them, it's because all of us here, all of you, are less evolved, right? And you have not evolved away from your need to believe in God and have community. This is why people, some people say that, um, you know, religion is only a crutch for the weak, you know, or less evolved people. Evolution is also dangerous because evolutionary theory has uh, uh, impacted uh, others like Hitler, you know, in, in coming to a conclusion that certain races are better than others. And we know that that is absolutely not true. It is not consistent with a biblical worldview or with Scripture because we know in Genesis 1.27, it says we are all created in the image of God, every single one of us in this room and on the earth. And so then this viewpoint um, is also filtered down from, you know, education, from academic institutions into our popular culture, into TV, into movies, and on social media. It's part of an effort to push this philosophical agenda onto all of us. This agenda wants us to believe that evolution is a scientific fact, just like the air we breathe or gravity. But we have a question today. There's a central question that we are going to explore this morning. And in all honesty, I can't really think of a more important question than this. And it's, are we accidental byproduct of blind forces in nature? Are human beings a cosmic accident? Or are we the pinnacle of creation intended by a personal and loving God? Ask yourself, do you think you are a cosmic mistake and a fluke? that is destined to go out of existence in a matter of time, are you made in the image of God and will live for eternity? It's really hard to think of a more important question than that to me. And you know what's remarkable? 
is that many atheists, agnostics, and evolutionary scientists admit that the world uh, looks as if it was designed. They say, boy, you know, the, sh- the world sure likes, looks like it's designed, but we know it's not. You know, does that really sound like science to you all? It doesn't sound like science to me. So, for example, one of the most world-renowned atheists, Richard Dawkins, um, he says in one of his books, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. I have a question, all right? And I know we have a scientist in the room, okay? Ashley, maybe she can help me with it. I also know she has a few pet ducks, so you know maybe she can answer this. It's a very difficult scientific question, all right? If something walks like a duck, a duck, eats like a duck, smells like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, what do you think it might be? It's a duck, right? It might be a duck. So maybe the world looks designed and gives the appearance of being designed because it actually is. The amazing thing is that more and more scientists have started saying, wait a minute, the world looks designed. This should not come as a surprise to us as believers. Because, you know, David, more than 3,000 years ago, said before any scientific advancement, before any of this stuff that we're going to talk about today, in Psalm 19, 1 through 2, David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. So like I said, even 3,000 years ago, David knew that the world was the handiwork of an intelligent creator who revealed himself through the world. Now, we're going to look at a couple of examples today. We could go on and on and on. There's all sorts of different examples, but these are some of the most powerful, and um, just we're going to look at two for the sake of time. All right, so let's start with physics, all right? We're going back to physics class. I don't know if you ever took physics in high school, but we're going back, all right? Does physics point toward the existence of God? So let's say, I'm going to give you an example, okay? This is just like close your eyes or just like ponder, okay? Just get a vision, all right? So let's say you're in the middle of the woods and you see this clearing. Is it? Okay, there we go. There's the clearing with a cabin like this one in the picture. You walk up to this cabin and you notice something strange, you hear your favorite song in the background. I'm a soul man by the Blues Brothers. But then, but then you open up the door and you smell something else very strange. It's the scent of your most beloved meal, lasagna. I mean, I say lasagna, but actually pizza is my favorite meal. But I just thought lasagna was a little bit more uh, distinctive because everyone loves pizza. You look down, and it's your boots your size, a jacket that fits you perfectly. You look at the table, and there are DVDs, video games, and books you like to read and play. You walk over to the fridge, and it's all the food that you like to munch on. Then you walk over to the bathroom, and you open it up. All your toiletries, your shampoo, your conditioner, your body wash, your toothpaste, everything. Even the, toothpaste, uh, the toothbrush is your favorite color. All right? Now, what would you expect? What do you think is happening here? And no, you're not being stalked, and there's not some clone around trying to assume your identity, right? You know for sure that someone arranged this cabin with you in mind. They were expecting your arrival. There were too many things that were just right that couldn't be explained by random chance. 
You know what scientists have learned over the past few decades? That the universe as a whole is exactly like that cabin. There are certain laws of physics that govern our universe that all that um, universe that all have one strange thing in common. They are all set precisely where they need to be to have a universe capable of supporting life. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just give you the goosebumps thinking about, you know, how much God did to design our world perfectly? Freeman Dyson, who is not a Christian but a world-acclaimed scientist, said, As we look out into the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked to our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. Philosophers call this, and it was in the video they talked about it, the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. What exactly, you're asking yourself, what exactly does that mean? Think about, okay, like when you're in the shower, I don't know, showers have kind of changed now, but it used to be that when you're in a shower, there were like two knobs, right? There was hot and there was cold, right? And so you kind of had to tune the hot and tune the cold to get it just right, you know, because if it was too hot, you like burn yourself. If it was too cold, you're like, yikes, like that's freezing. Um, and so you didn't want to take a cold shower. Um, and so, you know, when you fine tune it, our laws, the, the constants of the universe are kind of like that. Um, you kind of have to fine-tune them because otherwise, if they're not fine-tuned properly, they don't support life. Um, and so uh, these, these laws of physics all have one strange thing in common. They're set precisely where they need to be for our universe to be capable of supporting life. So it's like our universe is set just right for us to be able to exist. And the laws of physics exist on a razor's edge. And the slightest change either to the left or to the right, and the whole universe would be inhospitable to life. Like you saw in the video, no planets, no stars, no sun, no life, no trees, no little puppies, no little ducks, none of it, okay? Sorry to, like, burst your bubble. Um, this is why Paul Davies, the, a world-acclaimed scientist, and again, not a Christian, he said the universe looks like a put-up job. He said... Um, the cliche that life is balanced on a knife's edge is a staggering understatement in this case. No knife in the universe could have an edge that fine. You know what science discovered about our universe? That our universe is expanding and that space itself is stretching in every direction. The mass of the universe has to be just right. If there were more ma mass, the universe would crunch in on it in on itself. And if there was less mass, the universe would expand so quickly that it wouldn't be able to form stars and planets capable of supporting life. A NASA scientist named Mark Horton put it this way, if the balance between gravity and the expansion rate were altered by one part in one million, billion, 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 there would be no galaxies, stars, planets, or life. You know how big that number is? Million with six billions after it? That's equivalent to taking the mass of the universe and comparing it to a grain of sand. And, um, and if the mass varied by one or more of those grains of sand, mathematically speaking, our universe would be inhospitable to life. That is incredible just to think about. But again, this is only one example. It's only one part. Scientists have discovered at least 30 parameters that each must be fine-tuned for there to be life. 
So some of you people who are kind of mathematically inclined are, are thinking to yourself, what happens if you start adding these things up? Well, let's just take two of them, okay? What happens if you take the force of gravity and the cosmological constant? What are the odds that these two constants in nature would be set precisely where they need to be to have a universe capable of supporting life? You know what the mathematical probabilities of that are? It's one, it's one in a hundred million trillion 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 trillion. That's like a huge number, right? I can't even conceive of how big that number is. So if you're having a hard time grasping that number, think of our national debt, and it's way worse than that, okay? Um, this is only two of the 30. What happens if we take all of them and put them together? What are the mathematical odds that we have a universe capable of supporting life? Oxford scientist Roger Penrose said... If we combined all the laws that must be fine-tuned, we couldn't even write down that number in full, since it would require more zeros than the number of elementary particles in the universe. You know, I have to say, just learning about all this, I really don't have the, enough faith to believe that that could happen by chance. Do you? No. I do not have enough faith, and I, I hope you don't either. Yet I know that because the universe is fine-tuned, that seems to be best explained by a fine-tuner or a mind who arranged it that way. The fine-tuning points towards a fine-tuner or a designer, such as a very real and all-powerful God. Now let's move from the constants of the universe, okay, on the macro, macro scale down to the micro scale. Okay, what about biology? So rather than the constants that are the same in our entire universe, let's move to the micro level and see if what David said in Psalms 19, 1, 1 through 2 about the heavens declaring and the earth declaring um, the glory of God. Let's see if it's also true in biology. So let's see if biology points toward a creator and a designer, towards the existence of God. So in, bio in biology, since the discovery of DNA in 1953, we learned that the human body is composed of information. Living systems function because of the information stored in DNA for the building of proteins within the different systems in the body. This raises an interesting question. How much information is there in the human body? Well, um, our bodies are made up, the average adult human body is made up of 100 trillion cells. And if you take the DNA in one cell, in one of those 100 trillion cells, and you kind of like uh, uncoil it in length, it, it, it ends up being about nine feet in length. And if you take all the cells in your body and you uncoil them and you kind of, you know, line them up back to back, it would go from here to the sun and back 70 times. That's how much information that you have in your body. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that wonderful? Don't we serve a great God? And what does DNA do? It stores information. How much information do you think all this DNA stores? Well, the D, like conservative estimates say that the DNA in, you, in one cell in your body has the equivalent of 8 billion letters, 500 million words, or 8,000 books. That means, human a, hu, uh, that means DNA can store information more equivalently than the best memory stick that we have available to us today. 
Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. And yes, it's also true for Steve Jobs and Apple. And you know what? I'm sure if we talk to Rosie's son Isaac afterwards, he can confirm that it's probably also true for Google as well. But this raises an interesting question. If we peer inside the cell and we see the sophistication and the uh, technology and all this information far beyond what humans can come close to creating, it raises a question about what is the best explanation for all this information. Those who don't believe in intelligent design have a popular explanation. Can anyone kind of guess what you think it is? Basically, they say we got lucky, all right? And they say we're the ones who are anti-science, all right? They say we got lucky. Richard Dawkins came up with this idea called the monkeys typing Shakespeare theorem. He said if you take enough monkeys and enough computers and you give them enough time, eventually one of these monkeys will sit down and type out all the works of Shakespeare. Do you see his reasoning? His point is that he's trying to explain how you get all this information through a blind and purposeless process. The question is, can this actually explain it? You know, there was an MIT scientist named Seth Lloyd. He said, given the age of our universe and the size of our universe, how much information could arise purely by chance? And he concluded, not all the works of Shakespeare, not one work of Shakespeare, not one chapter from, from one work of Shakespeare, not a page and not even a paragraph. Um, all the universe could produce by chance was four lines from one book of Shakespeare. And it is, to be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer. When we come across information, we know it comes from a mind. If we go to the beach and we see, I hope I have this picture behind me, John loves Mary, right? It's in a heart. And if you see that, none of you would think that that uh, came about by some random earthquake or some tidal wave. You know that was created by a mind. Either John loves Mary or Mary really wants to be loved by John, so she wrote that down hoping that he would say he loves her. But the only plausible explanation is that it comes from a mind. Stephen Meyer, Cambridge-trained philosopher of science, said, whenever we find specified information and we know the causal story of how it arose, we always find that it arose from an intelligent source. If you have a book, you trace it back to the intelligent source, and it's an author. If you have a newspaper, you trace it back to the intelligent source, and it's a journalist. If you have a text and it's legible, you trace it back to a texter, you know? And this reminds me of a story, well, uh, so for example, my mom, all right? Sometimes I get these texts from my mom, all right? It's like capital A, you know, or DFG, you know what I mean? And I kind of look at that, and I'm like, I don't think my mom really meant to send that to me, right? It's not really legible. She's not really saying anything. And then I think to myself, I say, you know, I know my mom, I know my dad and I were pinned at the top of her, uh, you know, on her phone, on that texting app, and it must have just been in her purse and it's jumbled around or, you know, it's like in her pocket and it's like a pocket text or whatever. So I know that she didn't mean or intend for that to be sent. It's not like her intelligent mind came up with something, decided to put it down and send it to me, right? Exactly. Um, so, we look inside the cell on the smallest level. We don't see the equivalent of John Loves Mary. We see more sophistication and advanced technology, far beyond anything 
humans can even come close to creating. And again, like I said before, I don't have enough faith to believe that all that happened by chance or because chemicals were in motion. I think it points to a mind and a very real and powerful God. And you know who agrees with me? You'll be very surprised to learn who actually agrees with me. If you ever studied philosophy, you would know the name Antony Flew. Because Antony Flew, for 50 years, was one of the most widely read philosophical atheists in the world. He said the idea of God is meaningless. He presented his evidence before C.S. Lewis at the Socratic Club at Oxford in the 1950s. He died in 2010, but before he died, he made an announcement that rocked the world. This former atheist wrote a, wrote a book, and he called it, There is a God. You know what persuaded him? He said when he started, there was little scientific evidence pointing to God. But when, you know, science started discovering these things like the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of the universe, and all the information in DNA, he said, there must be a mind. He puts it this way in his own words. What I think the DNA material has done is shown that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements together. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looks to me like the work of intelligence. And you know what? I think he's right. Some of you may be saying, well, if God is really out there, why doesn't he make himself, you know, more obvious? Why doesn't he make himself more known? Like, you know how we have all our toys, you know, and they all say, made in China, all right? We all know they came from China. Why doesn't God just, like, write on every cell of our body, made by Yahweh? Like, why doesn't he say that? That would be easy, right? Then you could just talk to the atheist and say, hey, atheist, look, it says, made by Yahweh. Um... Well, when we study the DNA evidence and each and every cell in our body, he basically did. He basically autographed every single cell in our body. For those with eyes to see and ears to hear, God has made himself known. You are not an accident, my friends. You are not a cosmic fluke. You have been made in the image of God. And he knows you and loves you and, in fact, does have a plan for your life. Isn't that awesome to know? Isn't that just awesome? Let's give God a round of applause. And I, and I will tell you, everything that I just said does not even include all of our own personal testimonies. You know, that's another way. The life-changing power of God's life-changing you know, power in our life is a huge testament to the fact that he is real. And we didn't even include those today. In Revelation 12, 11, it says, they overcame the enemy with the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So just, you know, as you're ministering to people and witnessing to others, yes, this information is very important. But also don't remember that you know, the person you're talking to, it's an individual with certain experiences and, and, and hurts and pains and sufferings. And, 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 and you got to really speak to them on an individual level. And don't, you know, speak, you know, about all this information without really developing a relationship with them and telling them the power of your personal testimony. You have to combine both together. Uh, and that's when it really becomes effective, you know, in, in ministering the gospel and, 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 and preaching the word of God. Um, so what does this all mean for us today, all right? 
what does this mean for us? And I have three points that I think um, we can take, like three takeaway points from what we learned today about, you know, God being real. So the first thing I think we can learn is that God loves us. And not just like, you know, people say, oh, yeah, I love you. I love you. I mean, he really loves us unconditionally, never ending. All right. What we just learned about all the fine-tuning of the universe and the complex information in the DNA and the human cell, we know that God did all of that for us to be here right now. You don't have someone designing such a magnificent universe with the exact parameters to support life if that designer didn't truly love us. The Bible also confirms this observation in John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves us so much that not only did he create such an intricate universe for us, but he also sent his Son Jesus to die for us so that we could be with him in eternity. The takeaway is that... um, It doesn't only point us to the existence of God, but it's that he loves you. He seeks after you. He offers you hope. We can have joy and peace in believing that God is good and his mercy endures forever. All right, so our second point, not only does God love us, but we can cry out to him. All right, all the fine-tuning and information in creation also points to God's power. Not only did he design the universe, but he has the power to turn it around and change it for our good. Romans 8.28 tells us, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You are not alone. God knows your name. He knows who you are and what you are going through. God promises to be with you through any suffering or pain. He gives you the strength to endure and can turn around things for your good. And, you know, I will say the point of our walk as Christians is not always to feel good and be comfortable. Sometimes the enemy brings things into our life. We have trials. We have tribulations. But God has given us the ability to cry out to him and overcome it. And through that, we mature and we grow and we become better Christians. And the point is, is the, the goal of, uh, is not to be comfortable and to feel good. It's to make sure that as many people make it to heaven as possible and learn to love and serve our God who's in heaven. So we just have to be mindful of that as, life, as we go through life and, and we deal with uh, some of the, um, the uh, just uh, difficulties of life. Um, okay, and so lastly, uh, what we can learn from this. Now, I will say this is not a, um, it's not like a direct point that you can infer from today. It's not like there's this mountain of evidence that you can uh, infer from this last point. But I think by extension, it's really important, important to make this point. Because if you think about what we've been learning about, you know, how we know Jesus is alive, how we know the Bible is true, and then today, how we know God is real, I think this point really extends from that. Um, and so it's not only does God have the power to change things around for our good, but also the Bible tells us that we have authority as believers in this world. Um, and so when David was in the sheep fields, he looked up to the sky and he said in Psalms 83, 3 through 6, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? 
You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet. And if you look at that end, it says, you made them rulers over the work of your hands. I mean, here David is, he's looking at the stars, he's looking at the moons, he's looking at creation, and he comes to the conclusion that us as humans, we are rulers over the work of his hands. God wants us to be in partnership with him in in overcoming this world's trouble and accomplishing his purposes. Luke 10, 19 also tells us, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. When we look at the incredible complexity of the universe and all the information in DNA and God's power, why would we doubt or have fear when we see what it and when we see what is going on around us in the world right now? We have the authority of the Almighty God to change the circumstances around us if we are wise and we are bold and we're willing to lean into Him when we face tribulations and trials of many kind. You think God can't handle inflation or wars or the moral decay that you see around us? God's not stumped. He is Almighty God, and we can be encouraged and confident and know that He has a plan and He will accomplish. He will accomplish his purposes if we are only faithful and willing to follow his leading. So that's all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed it. Amen. All right. Praise God.